If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, we're going to start there. Uh, this year we've been looking at Jesus. All year we've been looking at Jesus, specifically who Jesus is. Jesus is our friend. Jesus is grace. Jesus is the story. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the point. Jesus. And, and I hope, I hope that by now that, that you are coming to understand, that you're coming to see that whatever the question, whatever the issue, whatever the situation for Christians, the answer is Jesus. Jesus and his message are just as relevant today in 2022 as they were in AD 42. Jesus can be trusted. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18, says this. This is Jesus talking. And he says, Therefore, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So these final verses, if you followed along in your Bible, you'll see that the end of Matthew ends like there. That's the end of that book. These are the last words that Jesus gives his friends, his followers, before he leaves, before he goes back into heaven. And he leaves them with like these final commands, these marching orders. And he says, go, go into all the world, go into all the world and make more disciples, make more followers of Jesus. Now, my wife, who you met on Monday, my wife and I are currently leading a small group study through a book called The Insanity of God. And we meet every Thursday night and we discuss this book. And by the way, there's still space if you're interested, let me know. And this book, now this book, like five years ago, five years ago, Dr. David Farrell told me I had to read this book. But I was busy and I don't, I didn't listen to Dr. Farrell. I don't know if any of you have him as a professor and you don't listen to him, but I was in that boat. I didn't listen to him. And then a few months ago, Dr. Farrell again reached out and he said, hey, remember that book I told you about five years ago? And I was like, no, I don't remember. What? And he's like, you really need to read this book. And so to appease him, because I knew if I didn't do something, he was going to email me and then text me and then stop by my office and all these things until I, I had this book. So to appease him, I ordered the book with the intention that eventually I'll get around to reading this book. And so it came in the mail, it was sitting on our counter, and Suzanne picked it up and she was like, hey, what is this? And I was like, Dr. Farrell wants me to read it. And she's like, well, are you gonna read it? And I was like, probably not anytime soon. She was like, well, I'll take a look at it. And so she read this book, The Insanity of God, and she's like, Zach, Zach, you, you need to read this book. She's like, really, every Jesus follower should like read it. And then she informed me, she's like, also I contacted our church and we're set to lead a book study on this book. Oh, well, now that you've met my wife and you know how brilliant she is, you know that when the prophetess speaks, you listen. And so I read the book at that point because I was like, oh crap, we're leading a book study. I probably shouldn't know what the book's about. So this book, I read it and this book, like it totally like wrecked me. People still say that. It, it like wrecked me. 
It follows, the book follows, it's a true story. It's a narrative. It follows the story of this guy who travels into this really dangerous area of the world in the mid-1990s, way back in the 1900s, in the 1990s, with a desire to share Jesus with these people. It's the story about all that he experiences and all of these things that are happening. And then he talks about meeting all these people in areas of the world where it's illegal, where you can go to prison for talking about Jesus. And he meets all these people who are in those situations. And there's this reoccurring idea. There's this challenge for people in America who follow Jesus. This book is this challenge to this next slide. This book is the challenge to don't ever give up in freedom what we would never give up in persecution. So essentially, folks, there are millions of people all over the room that to be able to gather in a room like this and sing songs to Jesus would put them in prison. And they're saying, don't give up what you have the freedom to do for something that we're being put in prison because of. I bring this up because there's this part of the story that meets what we're talking about this morning. In the story, this dude who writes this book, he's in front of this board, this interview committee, and they're essentially asking him, they're saying, listen, what skills, what qualifications do you have to travel around the world and tell people about Jesus? Essentially, they're looking for like his ministry experience. Does he have a degree? Did he go to college? Was he a Bible major? Has he studied and trained? Like, like what are his qualifications? And this guy looks at this committee, this board, who's going to approve him to go to this other part of the world. He says, my qualifications, Matthew 28, Jesus says to go, and I don't think that's optional. So Jesus tells his followers to go, to make more disciples, more followers, to baptize them, to teach them everything that Jesus taught. And right before he leaves, he tells them, surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age to which Peter responds, don't call me surely. I was like, come on, that's such a good dad joke. Jesus tells his followers, he says, I'm going to be with you forever. So Jesus is here. Jesus is here now, today. Jesus is here with you. Jesus is here with you when everything is awesome, when you're ringing the victory bell in the middle of the plaza. Jesus is here. Jesus is also here in the hard times, in the moments when you feel like you're barely holding it together. Jesus is here inviting us to experience joy regardless of our circumstances. If you still have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to flip over to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6 says this, you became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with joy, 
given by the Holy Spirit. Now, in order to understand why this is so powerful, why I would read one verse out of a letter, you need to understand why this is, what's happening here. You need a little context about what's going on. So 1 Thessalonians, it's a letter. This is a letter. It's written in the first century, and it's written by one of the first Christians, a guy named Paul. And Paul writes to this first group of Christians this long letter. And what's happening is that these first Christians are living in the middle of a territory that's, that's ruled by the Roman Empire, this giant global military superpower. Now, at the head of the Roman Empire was a guy named Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar had an adopted son named Caesar Augustus. Now, when Julius Caesar died, Augustus proclaimed that Julius Caesar had actually not died, but instead that he had become a god who should be worshipped. And when Augustus died, his successor, a dude named Tiberius, did the same thing for him. So Augustus and Tiberius, during their lifetimes, were referred to as sons of God. And eventually people just started worshiping them as divine as well. And then this morphed again, and people would simply worship whoever the current Roman emperor was. They would worship them as divine, as a god. So Thessalonica, this community that this letter is being written to, they were inundated with this way of seeing the world, that these people had a God for everything. If you, if you were going to plant a tree, you would pray to the relevant God. If you were going on a business trip, you would first make a quick trip to the appropriate shrine before you traveled. If your son or daughter was getting married, then serious, then serious costly worship to the relevant God was expected. And at the top of this list of all of these gods was the Roman emperor. So it's in this context, it's to this community that these first Christians come in. And they start telling people about Jesus. They talked about the one true God. And so the people heard this and they were like, yeah, we've heard this one before. And they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. Jesus, Jesus is the son of God. And they were like, yeah, no, 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 no. We heard this one before. But no, no, you understand. Jesus demonstrated he was God by raising from the dead, by coming back from life. And they said, okay, actually, we haven't heard that one before. And they said, actually, we believe that this God, that Jesus is Lord, that Caesar isn't Lord, but Jesus is Lord, and that Jesus is coming back, and he's going to establish a kingdom that will rule over the whole earth. That Jesus, Jesus isn't like Caesar. Jesus isn't like Rome. Jesus is not about conquering, but he's about radical, inclusive love. Yeah, we haven't, we haven't heard this one before. You can imagine if you're in this kind of community and you start hearing this kind of message, some people are going to respond really well. For some people, it's going to be like, like a cup of cool water on a hot day. But for others, for others saying, no, 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 Jesus is Lord. Jesus is in charge. You may think you're in charge. You may think you have the strongest army in the land, but Jesus is ruler of all of it. For other people, you're challenging their very power structures with which they base their life. You're dethroning their gods. Totally different from today, I mean. So when Paul, when Paul writes the word severe suffering, this is what he's talking about. These first Christians are suffering simply because 
they're Christians simply because they're speaking the name of Jesus. But then it tells us that in the midst of this suffering that these Christians had joy. A joy that was given to them by God himself through the Holy Spirit. So even in the midst of severe suffering, severe suffering, the kind of suffering where the people in charge would take Christians and they would put them on a stake and they would set them on fire. They would burn them alive to use the light of these people to light their parties. So they're like, hey, come over, we're having a party. But it's nighttime, we can't see. Don't worry, I have the light taken care of. And it's literally burning Christians to light these parties. This is the kind of suffering, and even in the midst of this suffering, they're saying, I know there's joy in this. Even in the midst of this horrible stuff, Jesus is here. Jesus, joy can be present. Joy can rise above whatever our circumstances are. The world can be falling apart around us. And we can still have joy. Another one of the first Christians, a guy named James, he takes us a step further in the book of James chapter 1. He says this. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is another letter. It's written by one of the first Christians. And again, we get this connection between joy and suffering. James says, consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy. In other words, pure in the Greek language is the word pesan. Let me hear you say pesan. Good. Now this, the pesan means whole or complete or utter. So James is talking about like, like the heightened effect of joy, pure joy. Pure joy. He says, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So the word trial in the Greek language is the word peripipto. Let me hear you say peripipto. Now, peripipto refers to any unwelcome or unanticipated experience. Have you in your life ever experienced an unwanted or unanticipated experience? Yeah. So James says that as followers of Jesus, our response to unwelcome or unanticipated experiences in our lives is to be utter joy. Now, I think that James knows how dumb that sounds, how dumb it feels. So he gives us the next part and he says, do this because, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now, when James talks about perseverance, he's talking about like a spiritual endurance. He's talking about what our response is when we're held over the fire. The kind of perseverance he's talking about is constant and steadfast. It looks at adversity with a spiritual hope to it. So for James, this is a perseverance that's rooted in hope. This belief, this belief that our current circumstances our current circumstances, wherever you are right now, it's not the end of your story. And so we consider our current circumstances, we consider them pure joy, utter joy, because they remind us that we worship a God who's putting it all back together, that he's restoring it, that he's making all things new, that there's a joy that's not rooted in what we're experiencing now, but it's rooted in the promise, in the hope that we have in a Jesus who defeated death and will one day establish a kingdom here and now and it's jesus who promises and he says i'm here 
with you. Now I'm here. Now, again, if you're like me, and you're listening at all, you're thinking, okay, I, like, I, know, I know that the Bible is like supposed to be true, and that sounds good, but like, how do you do it? How do you live it? Like when the world is crashing in around you, we're supposed to be like, oh, Jesus is here, and that's some joy. What? Like, what does that look like? Like, how do you do that? If you were here Monday, you heard my wife, Suzanne, and I mention briefly about how at one point we were licensed foster parents. And actually, we adopted both of our girls uh, from foster care. They started out as foster kids in our home. Because for Suzanne and I, for my wife and I, um, the foster care crisis, the orphan crisis inside the United States, the fact that in the state of Kansas right now, there are kids sleeping in foster care offices because there are not enough homes, not enough people willing to open their homes and serve in that way. My wife and I had a bit of an issue with that because we think Jesus has a bit of an issue with that. Because for us, for us, for Suzanne and I, there was this conviction that it's a pro-life issue. And that for us, for us, for Suzanne and I, there was this sense that, that look, it's easy it's easy to say you're pro-life. It's easy to put a sign in your yard. It's easy to make a mark on a ballot in a certain way. That's, that's easy. But for my wife and I, we were convicted that Jesus doesn't call us to easy. He calls us to be broken open and poured out for other people. He calls us to demonstrate his love for the world and the picture of adoption is the picture of what God has done for us through Jesus. And so we signed up and we took these classes. Actually, um, we, we took, when we took our adoption, like our foster license classes, um, President Favara and his wife happened to be in the same classes. Um, and I still feel bad for that instructor having us in those classes together. Um, but we took these classes and we became licensed foster parents. And so our daughters, both Karis and Bella, started off in our home as foster kids. And then we adopted them. Now, Karis's adoption was relatively easy. In fact, when she came to live in our home, her birth mother had already relinquished her parental rights. So she came to us already looking for her forever home. She came into our home as a kid who needed to be adopted. So she came to live with us in June and we adopted her in December. It was like, we we're like, dude, this like foster to adopt thing is like super easy. Like, why not more people do this? Literally not difficult. We didn't understand. That was our experience with the foster care system. This is really convenient and easy. And there's like free kids out there and you can just adopt them. And it's amazing. <laughs> I know that makes it sound like human trafficking, but you know what I mean? So that was our, that was our, that was our experience with Karis. Now, Bella was a bit different. You see, Bella came into our home as what's called an emergency placement. What that means is there was a day when I got a phone call. And uh, I answered the phone, and it was our adopted worker. And he said, hey, um, we got this uh, children, And we were done. Like, we thought four kids, super easy, no one wants. Our two kids, super easy, no family for us. And I said, 
Nobody wants three kids. Three kids is a disaster. Because with three kids, you go from playing a man-on-man defense to a zone defense, right? There's always, all the time, you don't know where one kid is. Like, you don't, so, like, three kids, you didn't want three kids. Two is good. But they called and they called me, and I'm the son. Like, I'm the bleeding, of the two of us, I'm the bleeding hearts. They said, listen, we have this 16-month-old little girl. Um, and they told me her story. And, and it was forever. And, and they said, she need, we need emergency placement. So I'm like, yes, absolutely. I don't even ask my wife. I say yes, and then I call through and I'm like, hey, guess what? Did a thing. Did a kid. Um, so this little girl shows up with a duffel bag full of stuff, and that's it. She's a foster kid in our home. And the goal is what's called reintegration. That was our goal. That was our job. Our job was to work with her birth mom to help her birth mom do the things that she needed to do so that Bella could be able to go back and be with her family and, and that everything was great. And so that's what we did. We worked with this birth mom for over a year. We worked this process. All the while, Bella's in our home and you tell yourself as a parent, I'm gonna love this kid because you're in my care, but don't get too close. I can't get too close because like, you're gonna have to give her back. Like she, the goal is for her to go back to her family. So I can't, like, I can't get too close. And so you're, you're living in this tension all the time of I wanna care for this girl, but I can't, I can't get too close. And eventually, eventually became clear that the best thing to do for Bella would be to move her from what's called the reintegration side to the adoption track. So we celebrated. We're like, here's this little girl who at this point has been part of our family for about two years. And it looks like, like we're going to get to be her forever. Like we're going to get to adopt her. She's going to get to be a plumbing. And then weeks before that decision is to be set in stone, two weeks before, great uncle shows up. Great uncle that no one knew existed. Shows up to the, the foster offices. Hey, I hear I have a niece from foster care. And I want to adopt her. Someone Bella's never met. Great uncle. Her daughter. You have to understand, Bella was our daughter. Like, we had let ourselves go there when they're like, hey, she's on the adoption side. We're like, it's golden. Like, we're there. She's our kid. We were on track to make her an official part of our family. But so then this happens. And what we found out is that our daughter's future, Bella's future, was going to be decided by a room full of people who would sit around. We didn't get to be in there. This room would sit around and they would discuss what would be better. The, the blood relative, and they always go with blood, and that makes sense. Because in 99% of situations, that makes sense. You were the 1%. So they sat in around the room and they said, who should we go with, the great uncle or the foster parents? So I remember, I remember Suzanne and I walking into our church sanctuary on a Tuesday afternoon, the very time we knew that these people were going to meet, be meeting. And I remember falling in front of the church altar with my wife, pleading for this little girl. I remember asking our church family to join us, pleading that we could keep this little girl. If there was ever, if there was ever, guys, a moment in my life where I wanted to look at the writer of the book of James and I wanted to say, consider pure joy, I will show you pure joy. You have no idea. 
been there. Sometimes it's not easy. And sometimes the last thing you need is the stupid Sunday school, just trust Jesus answer. It's real, it's raw, and it's messy, and it rips you open, and it leaves you wondering, am I ever going to get through this? Is it ever going to be okay? That family member with cancer, is it ever, ever going to not feel like this? Jesus, Jesus, you say that you're here, but I got to be honest that I don't feel like you're here. So maybe you're in a place of, yeah, I get joy. I get it. Pastor Zach, joy is nice, but you don't get what I'm going through. You don't understand my suffering. How in the world do you want me to have joy in the face of abuse, in the face of betrayal? Joy is nice for the people that have it good and easy, but you don't understand what I'm walking through. And in one sense, you're absolutely correct. I don't. I don't know. But here's what I do know. In the midst of your junk, in the midst of your crap, in the midst of whatever hell you find yourself, Jesus is here. You can trust him. Know this is true. Because I've experienced it. When we were in the middle of that season with Bella, there is this scripture that I clung to. There's a scripture that I prayed. There's this verse that I was drawn to, and I was claiming the truth of that scripture for Bella. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, which says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. And for me... As I prayed that scripture, as I prayed it over who I believe was my daughter, I had this picture in my mind of how this would work. That I knew that God could do immeasurably more. And so I knew what that would look like for God to move. I believed it would look like this great uncle disappearing back into the abyss from, the abyss from which he'd come. That Bella would be ours to adopt that our family would be complete, that we would live happily ever after, and that would be a miracle. Don't side with the foster parents. The scripture I was praying, because God does more, more than he has. For the people in the room that day, spoiler alert, he ended up deciding that Bella's best interest Let's just stay with our family. For Suzanne and I to be able to adopt. But the great uncle doesn't disappear. Instead, he and his wife, Krista, have become part of our family. And they were there months later, standing with us as we dedicated Bella in church. They were there. We had an adoption party for Bella, and they were there for that. This aunt and uncle, Gabe and Krista, our other kids now call them Uncle Gabe and Aunt Krista. Our families have gathered together to celebrate holidays. Oh, and when we first, like, met, Gabe and Krista, like, wanted nothing to do with Jesus, church, God, Bible, etc., um, since we met them, like they, 
They're part of this amazing church in Wichita that does street ministry to like homeless people. They both said yes to Jesus. And like five years ago, they said, hey, um, we've been living together for a while now. And we want to get married. And we're wondering if you would officiate our wedding. So I got to officiate Gabe and Chris's wedding like five years ago. This, this is the story that God is writing. This is evidence that Jesus is here. And it's like nothing I could ever write. Nothing I could ever imagine looks like this. Are you kidding me? It's so much bigger. It's so much better. Look, it's easy. It is easy to get stuck in a moment and forget that Jesus is here. Jesus can be trusted. It's easy to only see this moment when we have a God who can zoom out and see the whole thing. So my hope for you this morning is that you would come to see that no matter what is happening in your life, wherever you're at, again and again and again, you're going to come back to Jesus. Because I've experienced him to be true. Changed my life. Jesus is here. Would you stand in this praise? So God, we need you to remind us wherever we find ourselves today that you are here, that you are present in the midst of our pain and in the midst of our hurts. You're present in the midst of our joys and our excitements and our hopes that you are here, that you are present and that you see so much more than we do. God, I pray that we would take that with you as we leave. We do pray for the golf team as they travel. We pray that you would watch over them, that you would be with them, that you would encourage and equip them, that they would play for an audience of one. God, we give you the rest of this week, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you leave, before you leave, I invite you to hear these words this morning. Don't leave. God loves you more than you can ever imagine. He loves you with a love that has no beginning and a love that has no end. Whether you feel like a success or a failure, he loves you. Whether you feel alone or surrounded by people, he loves you. Whether you feel guilty or righteous, he loves you. He loves you enough that he sent his son to live for you, to die for you, and to be raised for you. The truest thing about you is that God loves you. Whether you listen to me and believe it or not, it is true. God loves you, so don't forget it. Have a great week.